You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Hello, and welcome back to the China Geopolitics Podcast. You may have noticed I'm not Finbar Birmingham, although we will be hearing from him later in this episode. My name is Chad Bray. I'm a senior business reporter here at the South China Morning Post. And after a short two-week break, we are back in the studio and back in your podcast feed. And just in time, because it's been a huge week of announcements from both Beijing and Washington that will fundamentally change the nature of their relationship. Just yesterday, we watched as Beijing introduced its own anti-sanctions bill. It was aimed at U.S. lawmakers and officials, and it was in response to American policies targeting Chinese officials over their involvement in Xinjiang and Hong Kong. And earlier this week, we had the U.S. Senate passing a huge stimulus package aimed at competing with China and the announcement of a trade strike force aimed squarely at countering Beijing's policies. But this was just the lead up to the main event this weekend, the G7 meeting, when U.S. President Joe Biden meets with the G7 leaders for the first time and begins the serious work of rebuilding alliances that were trashed by Donald Trump. And the top line on the agenda will be, of course, China. We'll be hearing from political economy desk editor Zhou Shen and Washington bureau chief Rob Delaney. And later in the show, our newly relocated European correspondent Finbar Birmingham. You know him well. He'll be calling in from Brussels, bringing us up to date on the changing mood of the EU towards China and what we might expect from European leaders this weekend, as well as some other major developments that are underway. It's a huge week. There's lots to talk about. So let's get on with the show. I'm joined by Zhou Shen, political economy editor here in Hong Kong, and Rob Delaney, Washington bureau chief for the South China Morning Post. World headlines this weekend will be dominated by the G7. But the big news started Monday when Beijing announced it was bringing in an all-new anti-sanctions law targeting the U.S. Zhou Shen, as uh, we record this podcast, we're waiting for the legislation to be passed as soon as today. But what do we know about these laws and how are they supposed to work? Uh, well, thank you, Chad. I think this law is still kind of keeping secrecy. We still haven't seen the detailed text yet. We just didn't know that China lawmakers are reviewing it. But according to the governmental regulations already published by the Ministry of Commerce, we can generally guess what the law is about. And basically, this is a law is Beijing's defensive against what it perceived as increasing kind of legal sanctions against the Chinese companies and the Chinese individuals, particularly following the U.S. sanctioning of Chinese and Hong Kong officials in Hong Kong and related to Xinjiang. And for Beijing, this is a natural response. Say, hey, you know, they are using their legal weapons against us. Why cannot we also create some kind of legal weapons to hit back? So at the end of last year, I think the Ministry of Commerce has published a ministerial regulation saying, you know, basically, if any foreign company following any foreign sanction rules to hurt Chinese company, then the Chinese government have the rights to hit back. This is just for a ministry. But this anti-sanction law is by China's National People's Congress. So this is a national law. This is a different. But still, Chad, it's very difficult for the Chinese government to actually use these kind of weapons against American or European businesses. China has did kind of tit-for-tat um, sanction trade against the Europe. And this apparently you know, backfired very quickly because if China sanctioned European lawmakers and the European think tankers, and then the Europe will say, Hanong, you know, you are doing this for me, so what's the point of I go ahead with the investment deal with you? 
So, you know, China spent so much time and efforts to get this comprehensive investment deal with Europe, but now it seems going nowhere. It's in limbo. China can make this kind of weapon, but Beijing has to consider it very carefully when it really actually to use it against some American or European businesses. I wanted to turn to Rob for a minute. I'm curious what what you're hearing in Washington. What's the response right now, or is this on the radar? I know there's a lot that's being discussed around the G7. It's not at all. Uh, We haven't seen any reaction yet from the government, either from Congress or from the Biden administration. Obviously, that's just because there's so much going on in terms of Biden's trip to the UK and to Brussels, which will uh, ultimately wind up in Geneva with a a one-on-one with Vladimir Putin. So there's so much riding on this trip. It's so significant because it is Biden's first overseas trip as president. And of course, while China will not be at any of these meetings, China is looming over all of these meetings. So I think China is really attracting attention in terms of what is going to come out of this first overseas trip. And I just don't think anyone's had a chance to digest what is going on in Beijing in terms of this law. Uh, Thanks, Rob. And later in the program, we're going to have Finbar Birmingham join us from Brussels, and we'll talk a little bit more about the G7. Before we discuss the G7, I want to talk a little bit about what the U.S. Senate has done. They've passed one of the biggest pieces of bipartisan legislation in years, focusing around competing and countering with uh, China. And so, Rob, I wanted to ask you about sort of the new tools that are within this. There's support that's going to companies, but there's also a number of abilities to counteract China. So I want to see what's new in the package, and is it more about consolidating the U.S. position on issues such as Taiwan and Xinjiang? It is very much about that. It's about taking all the various pieces of legislation put out by many different lawmakers of many different ideological stripes and trying to take this very piecemeal approach that Congress has had in terms of dealing with uh, uh, activities that China is engaged in that they find objectionable and just pulling them all into one large, massive omnibus bill that will allow Congress to be able to refer to whatever it is that China is doing, whether it is military operations in the South China Sea, whether it is threatening behavior towards Taiwan, whether it is policies towards the Uyghurs or other ethnic Muslims in Xinjiang, uh, whether it is the funding ties in academia between China and the U.S. It's a toolbox to deal with all of these things. And at the same time, it really, for the first time, it acknowledges the fact that the U.S. government and industry is perhaps not keeping pace with China in terms of technological innovation. And and of course, the technologies that will really drive the economies of the the future. So yeah, there's a huge amount of uh, of incentives, of subsidies that will be available to companies and research centers to innovate for whether it's 5G technology, but even more so around semiconductors. The rhetoric coming out of Congress and also out of the Biden administration is this very acute concern about the fact that The U.S. is experiencing semiconductor chip shortages. The U.S. doesn't manufacture any of the very leading edge advanced semiconductor chips. So this large bill aims to really address all of these things. It's quite comprehensive. And Rob, let me just follow up on that and ask, because it's passed the Senate, is there support in the House for this right now? Or is there still some areas that there's some dispute about? 
Yeah, it's a good question. What's going on in the House is very unclear. It is more diffused at the moment. There's one large bill, it's called the Eagle Act, uh, and that's sponsored by uh, Representative Gregory Meeks. And there are also a lot of other bills floating around, and it's not clear, because there was so much attention on what's going on in the Senate, there hasn't been a lot of time to digest what's happening in the House. And from an early read of what's happening there, it's not as clear that this will pass as quickly in the House as it did in the Senate. So there appear to be more differences within the House over what sorts of penalties should be included in in the legislation with respect to any threatening activity by Beijing, I should say, towards Taiwan. So we don't know where this is headed. And it looks like they are pushing back the deadline that they've set in terms of having a vote on this legislation. There was hope earlier that it would be somewhere soon, right around the corner after the Senate votes. But it looks now like it's getting pushed towards the end of June and perhaps even more likely it's going into July when they intend to vote on it. That's very interesting, Rob. I would like to jump in because (laughs) it's not finished in the United States. It's not official law yet, but it's very rarely like China's National People's Congress and the China's Ministry of Foreign Affairs has already stepped out to voice strong opposition to this act. So this is quite unusual. And it can show that Beijing is closely watching this act, Innovation and a Competition Act, because for the Chinese government and for many Chinese analysts, it seems it's a very kind of Cold War plan targeted at China. And it also kind of put an end to a very long period of engagement relationship between China and the United States. And for many, it seems like the United States is using the same approach as it's dealing with the former Soviet Union during the Cold War areas. So for China, it's almost every red line that China has repeatedly warned that Washington has been crossed. You know, Taiwan, Xinjiang, Hong Kong, and even like, the, I read some texts of the uh, act and it seems like the U.S. is trying to make it law that, you know, the U.S. government has to put Huawei on the sanction list. The U.S. government has a duty to initiate kind of diplomat boycott of the 2022 Winter Olympics. All these, you know, are very, very concerned about Beijing. And also, of course, it's really deeply worried Chinese international relations community. It seems that the two countries' relationship are getting really from bad to worse. And maybe whether this act is kind of the moment, you know, the U.S. has crossed the river of Rubion, there will be no way back. Yeah, Yoshin, it's quite interesting in part because at least the support package for tech looks a lot like something you'd see out of Beijing. And so... I'm curious, are they more concerned about that or all of the sort of sanctions and various things that are wrapped within this bill? In an overall view, I mean, whether it's a competition in terms of technology, whether it's everything that the, the sanction is threatened, it's out of this perception that, you know, China is the number one enemy or number one challenge of the U.S. values and the U.S. interests. This is still a perception. This uh, for Beijing, this is not a fact. You know, China is, has reached this stage to challenge the United States. It's not an existential threat to the way of how the United States operates or exists. And Joshin, it's interesting. You said that we've potentially crossed the Rubicon here on this. So I'm curious, does this mean we're set for trade war 2.0? I think it would be go beyond the trade 2.0. It would be like fights uh, or confrontations on multiple, multiple fronts as we already seeing like over Xinjiang, over Hong Kong, 
over the Beijing, over the Winter Olympics, you know, there will be more and more confrontations. And then, you know, China is also making preparations, as you mentioned earlier, China's anti-sanction law. I think China is really trying to beef up its own defense when Beijing sees Washington gets more aggressive. So this is a worrying sign to see from Beijing's perspective, really worrying. At the same time, we have a couple of different things happening in the background. One of them is this week the Biden administration announced a so-called trade strike force that's going to look at supply chains in China. And then this morning, we had the administration roll back the TikTok and WeChat bans that were put in by the Trump administration. However, that could only be a temporary reprieve. Rob, uh, first, let me ask you about the trade strike force and sort of what you see that doing in terms of supply chains and reacting to China. Well, uh, this is the result of a review that started soon after Biden took office in January. I would say that there was nothing terribly surprising about the supply chain review. They make note about certain strategic materials that that are used in weaponry uh, by, by the military. But there's nothing, uh, there's nothing too jarring or too unexpected that came out of that. I would say what, what was more interesting was the Biden administration's announcement this morning dropping the, the Tic Tac and WeChat directive or orders under the Trump administration. And I think what that shows is that the Biden administration, while generally keeping in place much of the Trump administration's approach to China, they are trying to take a more targeted approach. This is, this is where we see the approach start to become a bit more strategic. And I think this is a recognition that apps like WeChat and TikTok, they don't present the kind of national security threat that 5G infrastructure might present. And I think it's a recognition that there are only so many fronts and there are, so many, there are only so many walls that the U.S. government can throw up between the U.S. and China. And I think this is their way of saying, okay, there are a lot of reasons to be concerned about China. There are a lot of reasons to consider China to be a threat, but let's not consider China to be a threat on every single front. So that's what I think is the important takeaway with what we've seen most recently. Joshin, I wanted to circle back with you in part because even as the G7 is coming up, we're seeing China travel to ASEAN and meet with their allies or at least neighbors. And so I'm curious what you see there in terms of China's response to what's happening to the G7. Uh, thank you, Chad. That's a very interesting question because for the G7 meeting, I think China's seeing this as, you know, the U.S. is trying to take back its leadership again, in which has been damaged and Trump of kind of U.S.-led uh, Western coalition based upon all this G7, about, uh, based upon NATO. And for this, China will see this as kind of encroachment in terms of international relations. So China has to do its own part, you know, to find its own friends, to find its own alliances. That's just we see in the past week, I think, uh, Wang Yi, China's foreign minister, has been Chongqing entertaining these Southeast Asian countries. China is trying very hard to, like, stabilize its diplomatic relations as well as the value chains in this region. And if there's anything that major coming out from the G7 meeting, I think this urgency of having a regional block or having a regional stability for Beijing will just increase. So it's going to be a huge weekend with the G7 coming up. We're going to have lots of news coming out. Joshin, I wanted to start with you and ask you what you think is going to come out of this this weekend and what kind of response we may see from China. 
Well, if the G7 statement didn't clearly mention China, I think China would just remain uh, largely silent. I think the past many years, you know, China basically don't say anything about the G7 communique. But if the G7 communique, as Beijing feared, are going to like put, you know, Xinjiang or Hong Kong on top priority, and then China will, of course, will hits back saying, you know, this is the China's sovereignty issue and the G7 has no rights to talk about it. G7 is a group belonging to the old, you know, they don't recognize the reality of the world, you know, they, their share of the global GDP has plunged from 80% to 40%. You know, you are no longer the rulers of the world and, you know, stop criticizing China for this and that, this kind of rhetoric from Beijing. That's my, my guess. And uh, Rob, I want to come back to you about this, too, and just ask, do you think the rest of the G7 will follow the U.S.? And we will see a strong statement about China this time around. Biden certainly made strong statements from the tarmac as he was flying out yesterday. And Rob, I wanted to turn to you and ask if the rest of the G7 will follow the U.S. Will we see a strong statement on China? And Biden certainly made some pretty strong statements about the alliance when he spoke from the tarmac on his way out yesterday. I think China will be very much present in the statement. I think it's too early to say how strong that statement's going to be, though, because the G7, of course, including Japan and including some members who might not be willing to go too far in terms of angering China, I think that will be at play. And, and I think there will be a lot of jostling about the statement. So I would say the volume on China will be quite high, maybe from a one to 10, it'll be, I'm going to say somewhere around a seven or an eight, but I don't think it's going to be all the way up at a 10 in terms of anger and fury, as it were, about China. Well, there's a lot to digest this weekend, and I know you guys are going to be quite busy, and uh, people should keep their eye on SEMP.com. Thanks for joining us. As critical news stories emerging from China continue to shape lives and business around the world, the weekly SCMP Global Impact Newsletter brings you expert analyses and insights on the economics of COVID-19, society, technology, and the environment. Sign up to receive your weekly email at scmp.com newsletters. Finbar Birmingham, welcome to the podcast for the first time as a guest. Thanks, Chad. It's a bit of an unusual experience, but great to be on the line with you. Yeah, well, we're, we're happy to be able to hear you again after you've uh, made your journey to Brussels. Um, there's a lot of headlines that are uh, dominated this week uh, ahead of the G7, so we really want to take a deep dive into that, particularly as we've seen comments from Joe Biden ahead of the meeting. We've seen a number of sort of uh, directives that have been put out, but it sounds like there's a lot of negotiations going on still. Yeah. Um, so from from the European point of view and the sense I get from speaking with various diplomats here, both on the UK side and on the European Union side, is that China will underpin everything um, over the next few days. So you've got three days in Cornwall for the G7 kicking off today, after which you've got the NATO summit here in Brussels on Monday, followed by a bilateral summit between the European Union and the United States on Wednesday here in Brussels. So all three of those events are going to be sort of percolated by discussions around China um, that is going to be driven by the United States. So uh, I think Europe would prefer and the UK would prefer if things were sort of not so directly targeting China, if things were maybe broader and there was some room left for some sort of cooperation and so 
on. But we know that the United States is going to be pushing for tough language. It's going to be pushing for actual action rather than just, you know, the G7 is often dismissed as being a talking shop because that's essentially what it is. But, you know, I was on a call with um, a briefing with some U.S. National Security Council members and they said to look out for the three C's this week, China, COVID and climate. So those are the three real major issues here. Now, European Union is definitely on a journey with China. Um, it's, you know, six months almost since they signed the investment deal with China. Uh, December 30th, Xi Jinping, Angela Merkel, Emmanuel Macron, great photo opportunity. Um, that's dead. You know, the European Parliament has killed that. There have been sanctions. So the relationship has really taken a nosedive in the six months since then. Um, and we can certainly hear that in, in you know, in, in the comments from the European Union leaders yesterday on a press conference, uh, they joined calls for an independent investigation into the origins of the coronavirus, which is huge. I mean, that's the sort of thing, that's the sort of language that got Australia in big trouble with, with China. You know, they were calling for this investigation last year and that led to, you know, tariffs, duties, bans on the likes of coal, timber, wine. Uh, you know, so the European Union going out on a limb like that is, is a bit of a development. We saw the same language in a bilateral statement from the UK and the US yesterday. Uh, where Boris Johnson and Joe Biden both called for an independent investigation, including on China. So this is definitely going to be on the agenda. Uh, you're going to see some chatter around a green alternative to China's Belt and Road. My understanding on that is that it's going to be very focused on Africa. That's based on conversations with people in the European Commission. The figure I've heard bandied about is $100 billion. This is something that was still being negotiated when I was in conversations on Thursday. This is... Uh, last weekend, uh, Finbar, let me let me jump in for a moment and and ask you about the Green Belt and Road. So that that's very similar to um, China's efforts to to try to uh, use its economic power to to build relationships with other countries. And so uh, I'm curious, you know, is this very similar to the Green Belt? Uh, the Green Belt and Road is very similar to that kind of program. We haven't seen the details yet. I mean, I would say it's certainly an attempt to counter China's influence, whether or not, it, I don't think it would work exactly like China's Belt and Road. My conversations with uh, people in the commission sense uh, give me the sense that this is going to be very focused on Africa, where China, of course, has a great foothold. The figure I've heard bandied about is $100 billion, which is not close to what China's um, talking about. Um, and it's also going to involve much more the private sector. Um, you know, this is obviously the Western preferred way of operating, the likes of the World Bank, the IFC, all these developmental finance institutions prefer to you know, put their money through the private sector where possible, different to China, which mainly focuses on getting money through the policy banks, state-owned enterprises, and so on. Um, so look, this is something that they were still negotiating on Thursday when I was uh, ch chatting with people. We'll see how much progress they made. You know, they, they, they have sort of gone out and sort of suggested that this will be announced on as part of the statement on Sunday. So I think we'll, we'll see something. How close it is to the finished article remains to be seen. Look, the G7, as I said, always gets dismissed as a, as a talking shop. It really does need to put its money where its mouth is. And, you know, Joe Biden himself said the other day, 
um, when he was uh, you know, getting on his plane, he said that his reason for going was to strengthen the alliance, make clear to Putin and China that Europe and the US are tight and that the G7 is going to move. That last bit is the most important, I think. It's this, you know, he wants to see action here. He's, he's fed up of uh, all these, you know, nice words and strongly worded statements. So, look, that might be something that we, we do see some some movement on, Chad. And, and I'm, I'm curious just how, how much in lockstep the leaders are in the G7. Because uh, when, when we spoke with Joshin in the, in the earlier part of the program, he, he was saying that he wasn't sure if if they were actually going to address China in a way that China would need to respond. But, you know, do you think we will see a strong statement on China where we will have to see Beijing come back? I think we'll see something on China for sure. Um, look, I think, as I said, the UK and the EU would prefer to go less directly on China. The e- the US is going to be pressuring them to, 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 to really put China to the forefront. You have to remember now, China is the absolute be all and end all of US foreign policy at the moment. Everything that they're they're doing domestically as well, you know, aside from COVID, you know, you know, supply chain stuff, infrastructure stuff, it all always comes with this caveat that they're trying to rival China, that they need to, to get their own house in order. So so everything's is seen through this China lens. Whereas in Europe it's not really at that stage yet. Um it's certainly on a journey, but it's not as far along on the journey as the United States. So I do get the sense that there will be a bit of bit of a push and pull, that the the US will be trying to push for more that the UK and the EU both are still trying to maintain this balancing act with China. You know, this is the sort of, I guess, the classic rules of foreign policy, you know, balance your values and your interests. The US seems to have just decided that in most cases, it's 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 more about, um, you know, going hard on China rather than balancing commercial interests these days, whereas UK and EU is not really as far along. I think we will see China in the statement. You know, the, the NATO summit on Monday will see definitely... Um, definitely China would be a cornerstone of that. We've heard that from the NATO Secretary General this week. He said that there will be more language on China than ever before. Now, if you look at NATO statements from 2019, uh, when they had their last physical summit before COVID and, and, you know, in the middle of the Trump uh, administration, there was barely anything, barely anything on China. Um, Now, for the Secretary General to be coming out in advance of the summit saying that there's going to be a whole load of China stuff shows how far the, the things have come, you know? So, you know, NATO being the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, you know, what, what, what does it, you know, have to do to focus on China? I mean, Russia has really been the focus around NATO for certainly the last 50 years. And to suddenly have NATO, which isn't, you know, contiguous with China, you know, it being the key part that's interesting. Yeah, no, it's a good point. Um, it does seem to be a sort of expansion of their their wheelhouse, so to speak. Um, they keep talking about how they want to include other like-minded countries, if not ex- exactly in the alliance, you know, alongside the alliance. They're, they're talking about, you know, have, having more focus on the Indo-Pacific. It's hard to know whether this is hawkishness on the part of the Secretary General or whether there is... Actually, there is there's definitely support from from a lot of the NATO countries. Um, I think that they, they it's it's all part of the West waking up to this perceived threat of China um, across Europe. You've got smaller nations, um, you know, in the Baltics and and other Central Eastern European countries that are members of of NATO that are really quite concerned about China. They are 
making it more of a focus of their own foreign policies, and that's percolating into into NATO. Uh, obviously, the United States being the sort of dominant party in NATO is 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 also a huge part of that. So I think all of these meetings over the next week, sorry, is like a bit of a, a blob where the agendas will be fairly similar across all three. China will feature heavily. How much of it will be sort of like indirectly or by name, we, we will see. Um, you know, there is a sense sometimes that China is the elephant in the room um, when they're talking about things like promoting democracy and shared values and so on. And they're definitely referring to China and Russia both. You know, it, it, how direct the language will be, I suppose, is to, it will depend on how much influence Biden can have on the, on the talks. And it is interesting because, um, you know, to have NATO involved in in much of the discussion around China, certainly during the Trump administration, was around the economic aspects of competing between the world's two biggest economies. In this case, you're talking the military. So could this mean like joint action in the, the South China Sea where we might see the navies of France or other places involved alongside the U.S. in doing some of these the things they do around Taiwan, for example? I think probably that's not um, too far out of the uh, question. Um, Germany and France and the United Kingdom have all said that they're going to be sending vessels to to the South China Sea and the East China Sea over, over the next months. Um, you know, the United States obviously engaged in that as well. Australia, not a NATO member, but as a guest at the G7 this week. So you, you definitely will see a bit more of that. But they're also not I think like the likes of Germany and France, they don't want to get dragged too far along by by by, by the United States. Uh, you know, Emmanuel Macron was giving a press conference last night and, and spoke about how he's delighted to have the US back at the table. You know, the, the United States is back after four years in, the, in isolation, but he was also very keen to impress that he still wants to sort of plow his own furrow. You know, France sees itself as, as, as really like a an independent powerhouse in its own right. Um, they're going to be taking over the, the, the European Council, the EU Council um, chairman, uh, presidency next year, and they've already suggested that they're going to do everything in French. It's just a sign of how France likes to insert itself in, in, as, a, as an authority whenever it has a chance. Um, you know, so I uh, I don't think that, there, you know, I think that there will be some of those engagements, Chad. I think that they, they are sort of keen to do more of that, but, you know, I, th- I think that they will try and, um, tempered, the, the, but the, the point to make, I suppose, is that how much will China allow this to to be tempered? You know, if you start doing operations like this in China's backyard, it's not going to be happy. It is going to puff its chest out. And how far can you go before you actually poke the dragon too much? There, there's so much focus on Cornwall this week, but I, I'm curious what you're hearing in Brussels because you know you're on the ground now. You're out out of quarantine and 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 really getting a sense of what's happening. So in the halls of power in Brussels, what are you hearing about about sort of the mood right now? The halls of power. I couldn't tell you. I can tell you what people are saying in the terraces and the coffee shops where we've been meeting people all week. It's there's a great vibe about the place. This the sun is out, the weather is is perfect, the skies are blue. Um and the place is buzzing because you know this is a town that's full of diplomats. You know, you can't swim swing a cat for hitting a dozen of them. And de- next week when, when NATO comes to town and when Biden comes to town, things will grind to a standstill. No, most people would be annoyed when, when they're talking about this sort of thing. But when I speak to people involved 
in, in, in diplomacy. They're, they're really excited because, you know, this is the sort of their meat and drink. They haven't had any of these face-to-face diplomacy for the past 18 months, really. And now there's a sense that it's back, you know, that people are being vaccinated, things are opening up. Just last week, they've just this week, rather, they've dropped restrictions on, on bars and stuff in Brussels. So it's definitely coming alive. When I'm meeting with people, they're, they're sort of excitedly pointing out where Joe Biden's going to be staying. They're looking at, um, you know, the, the, there, there's the little uh, freight hut, hut in uh, Place Jordan where, where Angela Merkel queues for her chips, um, af, you know, after meetings. There's definitely a buzz about the place. And to be honest, it's great to see because it sort of shows that we're we're turning a corner. The vaccination rate is rising. Um, people are coming out of their out of their shells where they've been since the start of the pandemic. Well, you know, it's, it sounds a lot like in New York during United Nations Week where you cannot get from one side of Manhattan to the other if you try to get in a taxi. So um, it's, it yeah. sounds quite exciting. Yes, yes. Looking forward to it. Finbar, you're going to be leading our coverage this weekend, um, but it sounds like you've already got a scoop for us. Tell us what's going on with the <laughs> dinner there. Yeah, no, I wouldn't say it's a scoop, but it's a nice bit of color. Um, I've got the menu for, for the weekend. It looks, I have to say, it's making me hungry reading it here. So on Friday night, they're going to be eating these leaders, turbot roasted on the bone, caught off the Cornish coast by a fisherman from Newquay. And this is a sort of classic G7, you know, multilateral fora type language. They always emphasize the local food. On Saturday night, they're going to be um, eating uh, seared and smoky Merlin sirloin. Um, and, and, and they're going to be washing that down with, quite pointedly, Australian Shiraz, which, um, you know, may be accidental, but I don't think it's really uh, much of a coincidence given that China has sort of banned Australian wine and a lot of these nations have been engaged in this sort of, you know, posting pictures of, of drinking this in support. Um, afterwards, after the dinner on Saturday, the leaders will be able to have baked brie, hot buttered rum, uh, hot butter rum and toasted marshmallows around fire pits on the beach, which is quite the image. Yeah, it, it it sounds like fancy s'mores to me as an American. Yeah. Yes, uh, pretty pr- pretty much. And the, these things I always find a little bit weird. Like I can't really imagine um, Angela Merkel sitting on a beach with Boris Johnson, you know, eating this sort of stuff. But you know, I guess they'll they'll have to do it. Well, I, I can imagine Joe Biden at least doing it if if you believe what you see on the Onion. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it's afternoon here in Hong Kong. It's it's the morning there in Brussels. Um, enjoy your baguette or a, a, hopefully a Trappist ale later in the afternoon for you, Finbar. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> Thanks, Chad. Thanks for listening to the China Geopolitics Podcast. Don't forget, you can get all of the coverage and analysis of the G7 meeting this weekend on SEMP.com. My name is Chad Bray. Thanks for listening. Have a good long weekend here in Hong Kong. Everybody take care and stay safe.